So we continue today uh, in this series of the Lord's Prayer. And what we've said from Jump is that the Lord's Prayer, as I just said, is a model for not only our life of prayer, but for life itself. That it, it is comprehensive, it is holistic in the vision that it sets for what it means to, to be human in God's world. And because it's the Lord's Prayer, what we've said from Jump, and we'll return to this even at the end of today's teaching, is it's the Lord's Prayer, certainly in the sense that it's the prayer that he taught us to pray, but it's also the Lord's Prayer in the sense that it is a prayer that he first enacted and perfectly, profoundly embodied even as he taught us to pray it. That, as one scholar puts it, that the Lord's Prayer is a distillation of Jesus' own sense of vocation, his own understanding of his Father's purposes. That in this prayer, we get the very vision of what proper relationship to God looks like in light of who we are. And so last week, Jalen did a great job of getting us started with the, the opening phrase there, with the address uh, of the prayer, which is, Our Father who is in heaven. That in prayer, Jesus taught us to pray to God as Father. And while this says something about the nature and character of God, it also says something essential about the nature and character of our salvation. For it is only because the Son of God came and made us capable of being sons and daughters of the Most High King that we can have the audacity to call God Father, have the audacity to believe that we are sons and daughters of the Creator Himself. And yet this is the specific thing about God that Jesus wants us to emphasize when, when thinking about what it looks like to properly approach him. And I just find that, as Jalen said, I just find that extraordinary, that he doesn't start with a litany of names of God as most of even the Jewish prayers of that time would have started. Creator of the heavens and earth and you know, uh, author of all of life and all these beautiful descriptors of who God is, Jesus distills them all into this, this primary means of encapsulating who God is by saying he is the Father who is in heaven. And by saying that he's in heaven is not to say that he's off somewhere and distant. It's actually to say the exact opposite. It's to say that he's near. He's as close as the very breath we breathe. He's in the realm and dimension of reality from which he rules all things. And so to say our Father in heaven is both to speak of his nearness, but yes, also to speak of his total otherness than us. Because to call God Father is to not cheapen something about his character. You see, we're to be reverent in his presence, and yet we're to be reverent as though approaching a good and perfect and holy heavenly Father. It's an amazing blending. I don't think it's a tension so much as it's a holding together of two equally profound, equally beautiful realities. Our Father who is in heaven. That's how we address God in prayer. That's meant to be when you think of God, I think by teaching us to pray in this way, Jesus is saying that should be your primary lens. That should be your primary image. That should be your primary means of going to God is God who is Father. And yes, other than us, but Father nonetheless. The next line that we're talking about today is the opening, really, request as, as the prayer now moves more into request. And it's hallowed be 
thy name, and we're maintaining some of that old school good King James thy there, because uh, most of us who have memorized this, I'm not saying most of us have memorized, but most of us who have probably have that language, and so that's why we're going with hallowed be thy name. Now these are not, <laughs> these are not words, uh, especially the opening word, this is not a phrase that we that's familiar to us. This doesn't like roll off the tongue. And especially this opening word, hallowed. I don't know about you, but that's not a word that I use like in everyday conversation. Uh, it's a word. It, what's so interesting is in all of the modern translations of the Lord's Prayer, this is one of the words that's almost universally maintained in translation. That there's just not a better word in the English language specifically that quite captures the, uh, the original language here, which, which is Greek in this case, the original language's capturing of what's going on here. So the word hallowed, and the only, the, the only I was kind of racking my brain this week, the only way that I think that we use hallowed is like in these hallowed halls, right? Or like on these hallowed grounds. Um, and I don't even know what that means, but it's like, it means something like significant. It means something special. I was at the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, a couple weeks ago, and those are hallowed halls. Uh, there's something unique and special and profound, and, um, and the, the actual word that's used there that I think even our modern usage of hallowed halls, hallowed ground is talking about, is really it's, it's related to the word holiness. Holiness. Now, holiness is a very profound, uh, we'd need to do a whole series on it, Holiness is, is a profound concept biblically. And it is something that is almost universally, first and foremost, attributed to God. That even the angels that surround God in heaven, what they are saying for all eternity is what? Holy, 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 as if they can't get beyond that characteristic of who God is. One great Old Testament theologian says, uh, Walter Brueggemann, he says that uh, holiness speaks to the uniqueness in substance and kind of God. The uniqueness of God in terms of uh, his, his very being is holy, is other than capital O. And it also speaks to his righteousness of moral character. And that's probably the one, if you're, if you're not around uh, church Christian things, very that's probably the one that you would associate holiness with that it's about moral character. But the scriptures really hold these two things together. And in some ways, probably that first one is primary, that it's about uniqueness. It's, uh, if I were to ask some of you who have been around Christianity a little bit, what does holy mean? I bet a lot of you would answer, set apart. You've probably heard that. And that's, that's, a, good, that, that's a good conceptual way of trying to capture that idea of uniqueness, otherness, is set apartness. And so the holiness of God is something that, that, that is uniquely characteristic of him. But then God transfers his holiness to certain things. In the Old Testament, the thing that is most often, other than God, called holy is maybe not what you would expect. It's not people. It's actually things, and specifically things, in the temple and tabernacle, the place where God's presence uniquely rested. And believe me, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. But, but stuff in the temple was said to be holy, was said to be set apart. And so that could be an altar, that could be a, um, a particular sort of basin that was used, that could be that these things were holy. In other words, they were set apart. They were taken from being normal things used for normal everyday life 
caught up in the this worldly stuff of life, uh, you know, a, a tree standing in the forest that then turned into an altar. It used to be a normal, earthbound, caught up in the ways of this world sort of thing. Not in a negative way, just that's what it is. A, a tree is of this world. And it would be set, it would be literally taken, transformed into something new, and then used for unique, set apart purposes in the presence of God. And that would be called holy. That thing was taken from common to holy. That thing was hallowed. That's the concept here, is holified. If I needed to like give you one, my best translation of what hallowed means, it quite literally means holy-fied. Hallowed be thy name. Right? Not, not hallowed be God, God be holy, because we can't add any holiness to God. It's hallowed, holy-fied be your name. What is the name of God? Now, when I ask that question in a modern Western context, you think that I'm asking for a particular title, a, a literal name, because if I were to ask you, what is your name, sir? I suppose you might answer, Jonathan, participatory theater. There you go. Um, John, right? Like we think of a literal, and so if I were to ask you what is the name of God, you might think of some of the literal names or maybe titles of who God is. God is in the Old Testament when he first reveals himself. He is Yahweh. He is this mysterious kind of wildly ambiguous I am. It's, it's God's way of saying I exist in contradistinction to all other gods, it is the most boss name ever given by a god, is Yahweh. Uh, god is creator. God is Lord. God is Adonai, to use the, the old Hebrew term. Um, god is Kurios in the New Testament, to use that same concept of Lord. God is king. All of these things, while they're titles, while they're names in the way that we conceive of it, is probably not what's going on here. It's not holy fi one of those specific titles. Instead, the name in this ancient Near Eastern context, if I asked you, what is your name? You would actually almost certainly start, at the very least, with what we think of as your last name, as your tribe. You would think of the story that your life comes out of. You would think of the, the reputation of your family, the name that you carry. This is why, say, in the book of Proverbs, again and again, we are told that uh, a good name is more precious than fine jewels. What's that saying there? It's not saying like a great name. Like we gave our kids great names, objectively. Like our kids' names are Drayton and Cameron. I know, they're fantastic. Like great names, right? And some of the kids up here have really great names. Um, and and that's, that's not necessarily what a great name in a biblical sense is talking about. Is oh, that's a really cool, no, 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 it's saying, it's saying a great reputation, being associated with a particular family that has dignity to it, that has a godly legacy to it. These things are the most precious things in life and are to be worked towards, are to be built towards. Probably, if I were to summarize all of that, I would say that the name of God here and the concept that we're primarily getting at is the concept of reputation which seems like a strange word to apply to God. But when you go back biblically and you look at 
the places where the name of God is talked about, um, you begin to, to realize that that's really the thing going on here. Uh, do you know the Ten Commandments? Does anybody know what the third commandment is? Good. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, we think that what that's saying is um, when you're upset and when you have to cuss, just don't include God. Like, don't include any of the names of God. Don't include Jesus in all of that. And like somehow, you know, thousands of years ago, they knew how we would use expletives in like 2021 or something. That's not, don't do that. Like, that's not cool. Um, honestly, I don't know about you, that's a little side tangent. Like, that's one of the only things that like rankles me. I'm, I'm not particularly prudish, but when someone does include the name of God, I'm always like, oh, that feels like a lot. Because um, that's at least what that's talking about. But there's a far more profound concept going on there. Because the idea of bearing the name of God is actually not just talking about what's on your lips. It's talking about what's in your life. To bear the name of God is, is the, the overlapping concept biblically is really to bear the image of God. If you've been coming here for any amount of time, we talk a lot about the image of God. It's very important to understand God's definition of what it means to be human is to bear the image of God, to be in relationship with God and to represent him in the world in, in, in joyful submission to him, we represent God to the world. That's what it means to bear the image of God. To bear the name of God is an intensification of that idea because while all people bear the image of God in the world, there was a particular people that he called out that bore not only his image but his very name. He, he put his name on the front of the jersey for these people. And he says, don't, don't bear that name in ways that bring shame to it. Don't bear that name as though it doesn't matter to you. Don't forget that my name is on the jersey of your life, if you will. That's why he says, right at the front, right after saying, no gods before me, no idols, do not bear this name in vain. It's not, a, it's not like a random inclusion talking about what we say. It's talking about how we live. It's to say, if you have no gods before me, if you are choosing against idolatry, making something else ultimate in your life, then you will not bear my name in vain. But if you choose any of it, right? Like all the commandments go together. They're not separate realities. They're building on one another. And so we ought not be surprised that throughout the Old Testament law, one of the greatest consequences that God speaks to that his people can commit when they fall short of his law is profaning the name of God. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. This is Leviticus, part of God's old, uh, part of the law for the Old Testament people of God. You shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name. This is a summary of a bunch of stuff that's gone before. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified, holified, that I may be hallowed among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Hear what he's saying. I'm the holy one. And I've done things that are incredible, that are unparalleled, that are incomparable in this world. 
Don't you bring shame to that. Don't you profane that. Don't you make that common. Don't you return that to just, oh, another minor part of my own story and reality. No, treat that as sacred. Treat my name, my reputation, my association with you as holy. When God makes promises at the very bottom of his people's rebellion against him when they are off in exile, one of the most famous passages where he begins to make promises about what he will yet do to make right what's gone wrong. This is Ezekiel 36, very famous passage. Uh, This is the passage that talks about God putting his spirit within us. It's the passage that uh, talks about him taking our heart of flesh and make, or taking our heart of stone, making it a heart of flesh, making us a, a once disobedient people into in obedient people. But listen to the kind of uh, preface to all of those incredible promises. God says in Ezekiel 36, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. I didn't just accidentally read that twice. That is a repetition in those. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And then all these beautiful, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. A new, you see, wrapped up the purpose for which God brings his saving grace into the world. The purpose for which Jesus comes is in order that God's name would be hallowed. This is not a small request at the beginning of the prayer. This is a way of saying, God, let the full reason for which you came, the full reason for which you created us and are recreating us in Jesus, let it be done. This is a profound prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Let all the promises you made about what this would mean for your name and reputation among the nations, let them come to pass in and through my life. And this is where it's so important to understand and to say again and again that we live as we pray and we pray as we live that this is not just meant to be something that we say in some kind of rote way day in and day out lord hallowed be your name the reason why we've named this series participating in thy kingdom come is because this is a signing up to be a part of what we pray for we are to be the answers to these prayers did you hear the I will vindicate my holiness through you. That's crazy, y'all. That's like bananas that God would say, the way that I'm going to take my name from something that is profaned among the nations to something that is holified is through you. And so how can we not believe that when we pray, hallowed be thy name, that this is us raising the hand and saying, Lord, let me be a participant in that work, in your world, in and through my imperfect life. Hallowed be your name. Let your name be kept holy. Let your name be treated with reverence. Enhance your reputation on earth. These are attempts that I found 
to translate this into our language. At the end of the day, we all have a choice of what we will holify in and through our lives. To say that we holify something is to say that we, we attribute ultimate worth to it. We say, this thing is more valuable and set apart in my life. This thing is so wholly other to me that it is of utmost value to me. That's what it means to holify something. That's what it means to hallow something. And we all do this. You might say, I am not a particularly re religious person. I don't holify nothing. I don't talk like that. Only you talk like that, preacher. Like, like, and I contend, no, no, no. You holify things. You, you have things. I have things in my life that are of utmost value to me. That I say, this thing, if it is threatened, if it is taken from me, will utterly destroy me. Whatever that thing is, that's what you holify. That's what you hallow in your life. That could be job, career, attractiveness, relationship, security. You know what one really great way, and this uh, I'm talking to people who, who have been around Christian faith for a living. You know what one great way to identify, this was super convicting to me, what you holify is? And it's right, it's right here for us. It's, it's what you pray for. It's, it's sort of like when all the chips are down, when push comes to shove, and you say, and you might, uh, you might be the kind of person who doesn't pray very often, but what are the things that actually drive you to such desperation that those are the times that you finally find yourself at your wit's end and saying, God, you got to help me here. Whatever gets you to pray, whatever actually moves you, and those can be almost... Um, those can be half-hearted, almost sort of um, irreverent kinds of prayers. God, please, right? Like, I'll give you a silly example, is I find myself at the end of Yankee games suddenly profoundly theistic, right? Like, I find myself, when, um, when I was needing a job, profoundly suddenly prayerful. I find myself when I've insulted someone or done something against someone and really don't want them to find out, suddenly urgent in prayer. Why? Because in all those cases, from silliest to least silly, something about what I actually holify in my life, my good, my good reputation, my everyone thinks that I'm a great guy, or my sense of, hey, I'm an accomplished person who can get a job and support a family in the world or my real unwillingness to hear another Red Sox fan tell me we better do this year, right? Like, all of those things, um, all, right? Like, when those things are threatened, suddenly I find myself saying, God, you got to help me here. There's no better way to understand what the Lord's Prayer is meant to do than to reprioritize our lives. That's what Jesus is doing, right? Like, so many of us, and by the way, even the request that sounds like we finally get to ask for stuff, we'll talk about this in two weeks, is not what we think it is. Give us this day our daily bread. Even that challenges our normal priorities. We'll talk about that. But the order of this prayer, anyone who looks at it, probably the first thing that you notice about it is it takes a really long time for me to ask for anything that I would be naturally inclined to ask for in prayer. I do not start most of my prayers with hallowed be thy name. Dear God, 
I'm here in prayer. And before I get to all this other stuff, I just want to say, you are the Father who is in heaven. My greatest priority, the first thing I'm coming to you with, the thing that caused me to open my mouth and close my eyes in prayers today is that your name would be hallowed. No, by the way, I want to prioritize your kingdom's coming, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That takes about 30 seconds, but that so completely reorients the human heart. It's like unbelievable. I've been trying to pray the Lord's Prayer as a regular part of my prayer. And it is unbelievable how often what, I, what actually caused me to close my eyes and open, open my mouth in prayer to God completely like is overshadowed, is completely rearranged by just taking the time to slowly walk my way through these opening lines. Because when we say, Lord, I want your name to be hallowed, you know whose name suddenly takes second place? My own. Father, your name holify. Right? Like not only do all of us holify things, we want to be holified. Do you want to be common? Right? Like do you want to be something that is, is normal or do you want to be hallowed? So many of our prayers at the end of the day, if you really examine them, say, who's being hallowed here? Who's being requested that they would be set apart, seen as unique, seen as morally perfect and righteous? So often, it's us. I think the great, the, the huge enemy of this prayer in our time is the huge enemy of this prayer in all times, but there is a particular version of it that is so unbelievably ascendant in our culture that I find myself just kind of talking about it all the time, seeing it everywhere. Uh, the greatest threat to this prayer is self. The particular brand of self that is enormously ascendant in our culture right now is what uh, people way smarter than me are calling expressive individualism. This idea that who you are at your most fundamental level is your desires. And that what you need most to give your life emotional, psychological, dare I say spiritual meaning is for you to express your true self. We see this in ways that are really easy to point the finger at. Where we have a culture that says you can name anything about yourself. Anything objective doesn't matter. Whatever's in here, that's what matters. And we can point our finger at that and say, that's a lot. That feels like a leap. And then that finger comes right back at us. Because I actually think that this is something that is so pervasive. It is so much the air we breathe that the same thing that causes a culture to say, biology doesn't matter in terms of who you actually are, also causes us to so thoroughly and completely believe that the most significant thing about my life is my psychological sense of fulfillment. And most of us live this way. I live this way. Heard a, a great uh, Christian philosopher who wrote a, a really important book called The Triumph um, of the Modern Self. Carl Truman is his name. He's a teacher, raised one kid. 
seminary. Um, and uh, in this book, he basically traces how we got to this point. How it is, well, I'll give you the example that he uses that kind of like blows you back. Is he says, and this would be so true of me, like I could very easily just say this about myself, but I'll give credit where credit is due. It's him talking. He says, if you were to ask my grandfather, who was, uh, I think it was like a sheet metal worker or something, did you find your work meaningful? Is he said, my grandfather would say, absolutely. Because I went to work every day, and it allowed me to uh, put food on my table. It allowed me to uh, be a, a citizen of my town. I was good to, to the people around me. Uh, I was a good worker. I, I wasn't someone that they had to complain about. And I walked home every day with a pr profound sense of fulfillment. He says, if you were to ask me, this is Carl Truman talking, if you were to ask me, do you get meaning from your job? So he said, I would answer almost entirely in internal psychological kinds of categories. Is I would say, I get, um, I have a sense that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I have this incredible buzz when I stand in front of a group of students, he's a professor, and I watch a very difficult concept click for them. And I get excited about the work that I'm doing and what it will allow me to, you know, how it will allow me to grow intellectually and all those things. He says, all of my categories are, are my own internal emotional kind of sentimental interests, are at the core of what meaning is in life. Whereas my grandfather's are these external fulfilling of obligations to others that gave himself meaning. That like kind of, that kind of blew me away is that we have lost a sense of meaning coming from that which is outside of us, from the obligations and the roles that we're called to fulfill, from the serving of others, the being with others, to this internal psychological sense of self. And I think that that's just kind of pervasive in, in a lot of things. It's so pervasive that we, especially kind of the generation under, under me, I'll say, um, is, is just not only is it that meaning comes from expressing your true self, but it is an offense and it is an act of violence against me not to allow me to do that, right? That if, that if those things war up against each other, there has to be a not let's agree to disagree, let's definitely agree to agree to agree. And into that, right, like we're being real right now, um, welcome to Jacob's Well. Um, into that we have the first priority of the life of the follower of Jesus is the howling of someone else's name, is the submission to someone else's way of doing things, is the submission to what God calls us to, which by the way, the Lord Jesus, when he came, he said, if anyone would follow me, they have to take up their cross and die to guess what? Self, right? You have to die to self. And so often what that means is you have to die to this unbelievable desire that we all share to express my actual desires. He says, a lot of that stuff's got to go. Now, this is not to completely dissolve, right? Like, come to discipleship course. This is what we're talking about. It's like having a true sense of self defined by God. It's not a loss of personhood. It's not a giving up and just saying like, 
um, I am a, a, a mush in the universe that God can use for whatever we want. No, no, it's as we die to the culture's definition of self, to our self-definition of self, God gives us a new sense of personhood, a new sense that your dignity actually doesn't come from the stuff that culture says it comes from. It comes from the fact that you bear my image. And all the more so if you bear my name, if you are adopted into the family, if I put my name on the front of the jersey of your life, that is really and truly who you are. And you will find your greatest joy and meaning and significance there. And guess what? Where the journey of discipleship often takes us is not further inward. That's a necessary part of it. It's in fact why even in our discipleship course, that's one of the first things to do. You got to go inward, figure out some stuff going on here. But the movement of discipleship, of growth in Christ like this, is a movement outward toward others, toward love and service primarily to God and love and service toward others. And Jesus says, this is where true joy is found. It's in the dying to the need to express your true self as defined by something other than your creator and finding new identity in your creator and then saying, okay, God, I'm yours and I'm following you into newness of life. That's what it means to pray, hallowed be your name. What's incredible about this is what's incredible about most things in the Christian faith is all of this is completely and totally impossible without Jesus. Um, and this is just so, so beautiful. In John chapter 12, just before the events of uh, the night before Jesus is crucified start, Jesus is still out among the crowds, really for the last time in his ministry life, and kind of suddenly, a little bit out of nowhere, this is John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this uh, purpose, I have come to this hour. For what purpose, Jesus? The night before that he's crucified. It seems like this probably happens on the day of everything that happens, when the First Supper happens, the washing of the disciples' feet. And he says in a public forum, my soul is troubled. Something's about to go down here. And yet, what am I going to say? God, deliver me from this hour? No, it's exactly for this purpose that I've come. What is that purpose? Father, glorify what? Your name. Then a voice came from heaven, as it casually does when you pray, I'm sure. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered, as would you. You'd be like, definitely not an audible voice, definitely thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Fast forward to John 17, the last prayer that we have Jesus praying. John 17, I'll start at verse 15. He's praying for his closest friends, for the disciples. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, holify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I holyfied, I consecrate myself 
that they also may be sanctified, holified in truth. None of us wants to be common. We all want to be set apart. We all want to be something. The only actual way to that is through this one who had every reason for us to bow at his feet, to holify his name. He made himself common to the point of a criminal's death. His name and everything that he stood for was subjected to complete and total rejection and shame. And he says, I do all of this that the name of God might be holified and that those who will follow me would be holified. In other words, we can never holify ourselves to joy, holify ourselves to significance and meaning in this life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life that holifies, that gives meaning, that sanctifies us and our existence, our common existence in this world. What we so often find is that when we actually do make the choice, and guys, this is happening in our community, not our community, here, Jacob's Well, is people are saying, no, I can't follow Jesus because I have to express who I truly am. And I am telling you that watching this is an utter devastation because what results from it is maybe a temporary sense of a little bit of fulfillment and a life of regret, a life of destroyed relationships. Because there is this attempt to say, maybe I can holify my life. Maybe I can make it sacred. Maybe I can find the joy that I lack. And what Jesus is saying is if you look to the cross, you will see the actual way. And it will mean the temporary giving away of those desires. It will mean the temporary setting aside of your right to express who you truly are. It will be painful. It will feel like a cross. And yet what will follow it is a life of restored relationship, first and foremost with you or with me. It will follow, it will be followed by a life of righteousness, gritty righteousness in this world that is external to you, where your rubric for joy becomes that which is outside of you, where you can say, my life has meaning because there's service to be done by me in this world. Do you know how counter that is to our culture? Jesus says, this is why I did it, though. This is why I did it, so that you can pray and live, hallowed be the name of someone other than me for once in my life and for a lifetime there forward. Herein, Christian, is your freedom. Herein, Christian, is your meaning and joy. Look around you. Look around you. We are right now in a cultural moment where, yes, expressive individualism is ascending. You know what else is unbelievably ascending? You know what else is unmatched in human history? is the rates of depression and suicide and, and confusion of all kinds, of mental health crisis like we've never seen before. We have to be people who say these things are not disconnected. And we say that in love and we say that in hope that there is a better way. But those things are connected. I watched it for eight years on a college campus. There is destruction beyond that. And then we have a savior, literally a savior. He's got to save us from this stuff who comes and says, I come to hallow you. The God of the universe says you are significant, says you're so significant that I will shame and profane my name such that I can give you my name that is above every other name. 
That's hope, Jacob Swell. Can we live that? Can we call it out when we see each other? Can we call it out when we see someone saying, well, this is my decision and my decision alone? Have you heard that? Well, I'm the captain of, of my own ship. We have people making massive decisions without any reference to anything other than, yeah, but, but what, 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 what does in here say, right? That, that's the same. You trace that line. It's the same thing. We can't say all of this stuff is out there and point easy fingers at culture. Can we be done with that already, right? Like we go with a message of hope and grace and love and a savior who can actually call people out of that destructive stuff. Let's live that way. Let's pray that way. Once you stand now, uh, we've ended all these times by praying this prayer. The love, the old school liturgy, uh, where the celebrant, as I would be called in this case, gets to say, and so we pray the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray, and we are bold to say, would you pray this with me? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Why don't you have a seat at this time?